And like Austin said, earlier today, my name is Tyler Young, and I am going to take just a second to share a little bit about myself before we get going, because I am not usually standing up here on a Sunday morning. Typically, at this point on a Sunday, I am either sitting in one of those fantastic red chairs we have in this room, or I am back in the youth room teaching children's church with my wife, Amy. I have the honor of serving as one of the deacons here at Friendship, and I also work in full-time ministry as the area director for Young Life here in our community. If you aren't familiar with Young Life, it is a nonprofit ministry organization with the mission of introducing adolescents to Jesus Christ and helping them grow in their faith. In Young Life, we really try to reach the furthest out kid. We want to share the gospel with the student who is the most ardent atheist, the student who has never set foot in a church, and especially the student who has never opened up a Bible before. The main way we do this is by building relationships and earning the right to be heard, earning the right to share the gospel with them. But we also have a few tools or strategies that we use and train our leaders in as they are doing ministry. One of these tools is called Campaigners, which is just the fancy name that we give our regular Bible study with students. I led campaigners a few weeks ago, and we talked about spending time with the Lord, which is one of my favorite things to teach on. I think it is so incredible that we get to spend time with the creator of the universe because we are in a relationship with him. We talked about a few different ways that we are able to do this, but we focused on two main ones, reading God's word and prayer. One of the things that got brought up was how it is so important for us to do this on a consistent and regular basis and to make sure that it is a priority in our day-to-day life. And I've heard people call this daily time with the Lord, a bunch of different things, but the most popular name that I've heard for it is a quiet time unless this is something that only people under the age of 30 say, there's a good chance that you've heard it or used that phrase before. Maybe you've been on a retreat and there is a time slot um, for quiet times. Um, Maybe you've been trying to make plans with someone and they just, they told you, I'm I'm good to go. I just need to have my quiet time before we leave. Uh, Maybe someone has come up to you and told you, hey, I've been struggling to get in the word. I've been struggling with my quiet times recently. But I have to confess something to you. One of my biggest pet peeves is when someone calls spending time with God, the creator of the universe, a quiet time. The reason for this, I think it subconsciously limits what we think time with the Lord can look like. It doesn't have to be sitting quietly at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee as you read your Bible, maybe take some notes in a journal, and pray through a prayer list although that is what my regular time with the Lord in the morning looks like, why can't spending time with God mean listening to the Bible as you drive to work in the morning, going on a hike and praying out loud to God as you are in the midst of his creation, or praising the Lord by singing your favorite worship songs? In fact, we are going to look at one of David's psalms this morning that I think he would have had to loudly cry out to the Lord as he prayed it. But we have something that we need to do before we open up our passage this morning, our verse of the series. 
We are in our fourth week of our summer in the Psalms, which means that our overachievers probably have memorized Psalm 71, verse 20. You guys got it back there? Um, but if you're anything like me, you're still working on memorizing Psalm 7120. But that's okay. It's going to be on the screens for us. But let's all say it together. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. In our psalm this morning, we are going to look at David's response after the visit from Nathan that we read in our scripture reading. This psalm has a lot going on in it, and I think that it is going to evoke different feelings or emotions depending on what section we are looking at. I think that we might feel a sense of guilt and conviction in our first section as we look at confession. Then we should feel a sense of joy and gratitude in the second section as we look at cleansing and restoration. And finally, my hope is that we would all be filled with hope and feel spurred on as we look at going forward in our third and final section. But to make certain that no one only hears something that is, they find very convicting, I'm going to share what I think is David's big idea in this psalm. If you only listen to one more sentence that I have to say this morning, make sure that it's this next one. Our author's big idea in Psalm 51, I think, is this. The seriousness of sin requires an honest and humble confession, which by the grace of God alone allows us to be forgiven. Let me say that one more time because I do not want anyone to miss it. The seriousness of sin requires an honest and humble confession, which by the grace of God alone allows us to be forgiven. So now that we all know the path that we are on and what the answer to the big test at the end is, let's turn to Psalm 51, whether it's in your Bible, on a phone, or in your bulletin, or just following along on the screens up front, and read our passage for this morning. Psalm 51 says this. For the choir director, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned, and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. 
restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteousness, in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let us go to our good God in prayer. Father, you are holy. You are perfect, and you want much for us. Bless this time that we get to spend in your word and speak to each and every one of us this morning. May it be your words that are heard this morning and not my own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's start by looking at the first six verses of Psalm 51, where we see David's confession. Right away, we see David appealing to the graciousness, love, and compassion of God but we also see the seriousness with which David views his sin. He describes it as a rebellion, and rightfully so, as the seriousness of sin can never be overstated because sin is lawlessness and a contradiction to the holiness of God. Therefore, it must be hated by God. Think of how David responded to Nathan's parable in 1 Samuel chapter 12. In verse 5, David says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Then Nathan has to tell David that he is that man. He took Bathsheba and had Uriah murdered. He had done evil in the eyes of the Lord. Do we view sin the same way that David does? Do we think of it as rebellion against God? We should Because whether it is murder or telling a lie, sin is sin. But how can lying and murdering be equally sinful? One is far worse than the other, or so we would like to think. And from our own vantage point, from a worldly point of view, murder probably does seem worse than lying. But we are not God. We are not infinitely perfect. We are not perfectly holy. Thus, we need to try and view sin the way that God views it. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. It does not say that the wages for murder is death. It says that the wages of sin is death. The reason for this is actually pretty simple. God is perfectly good, while sin is directly opposite to all that is good in the character of God. Therefore, God and sin cannot be together because God loves what is good and hates what is evil. I think that this is the idea that David is getting at in verse 4 when he says, against you alone, I have sinned. Because it is not just against God that David sinned. He had certainly sinned against Bathsheba. Just read chapter 11 of 2 Samuel 
and you will see that to be the case. But David's sin against Bathsheba does not compare to his sin against God. David's sin against a fellow sinner was wrong, but his sin against our perfectly holy God was on a whole nother level, and David knows it. He may have needed Nathan to rebuke him and point out his sin to him, but David knows that his sin goes against everything that God desires for him. Look at verses 3 through 6. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. I don't think that we can read that and not believe that David knows his own sin and how great of a grievance it was against the Lord. And how is it that David knows his sinful self so well? He was forced to examine himself, not by his own worldly standards, but by what the Lord desired for him. So we should do likewise. We must honestly examine ourselves for sin and go to the Lord in confession and repentance. Now let's take some time to figure out what that first part, honestly examining ourselves for sin, is. How do we do that? To start, we need to know what sin is because we can't search for something if we don't know what it is that we're looking for. 1 John 3 verse 4 says that sin is lawlessness. We have already read in Psalm 51 how David describes his sin as a rebellion against God. We have already explored that since sin goes against all that is good in God, God must hate it, which is the reason why it is so serious. One really helpful way that I have heard sin described is this. Sin is when we choose to be the God of our own life. Thus, sin is when we choose our own desires over what God desires for us. In order to choose that, so we need to learn to figure out what exactly it is that God desires for us in order to choose that over our own sinful desires because our natural human desires are sinful. David says as much in verse 5, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. We are born as sinful people into a sinful world. Amy and I don't have kids yet, but I've been told that if you don't believe that all humans are born sinful, all you need to do to change that belief is have and raise a child. As soon as they can talk, they know how to lie. And it is not as if a parent teaches their child to lie. They just inherently know how to do so. They inherently know how to sin. Now that we know what sin is and we know that if we examine ourselves for it, we are indeed going to find it, the question is this, how do we actually examine ourselves? I think there are a number of ways to do so, but I am going to focus on a few main ones. First, I believe and have personally experienced that the more I grow in my faith, the more I come to realize just how sinful I am. 
when I was just getting started in my relationship with the Lord, I used to think that as long as I didn't do the big sins, then I wasn't that sinful. As long as I didn't cheat on a test, I was less sinful than the person who did. As long as I didn't look at pornography, I wasn't as sinful as someone who did. As long as I claimed to be a follower of Christ, I wasn't as sinful as someone who was not a Christian. But each of those beliefs is riddled with pride and arrogance, sins that may not be as easy for someone to see, but sins all the same. A second way that we can examine ourselves for sin is to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us. Have you ever asked God to reveal just how broken you are without him? Because he will. And if you do, you might just come to appreciate Jesus' death on the cross for you a little bit more. Your heart might break just a little bit more for that neighbor who does nothing to hide his sinful lifestyle because you will be reminded that without Christ, you are in the exact same place as them, destined for eternity in hell. A third way for us to examine ourselves for sin is the example we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Just like David needed Nathan to rebuke him for his sin, we too need to have brothers and sisters in our lives who can rebuke us of our own sin. Now, don't hear me say that if you see someone sin, you automatically have the right to just go up to them and to begin rebuking them and calling them on their sin because you don't. But we all, as followers of Christ, should have people in our lives who know that we want them to hold us accountable to choosing the Lord's desires for us over our own. This could be a spouse or a roommate, maybe your best friend. It could be someone in your life group which is just one of the many benefits of being a part of a life group. You get to grow in your relationships with other believers and continue to point one another towards Christ. But what do we do after we have honestly examined ourselves for sin and we find it? We need to go to the Lord in confession and repentance. Now these are words that I am sure all of us have heard or used before, but we may not be exactly certain of what they mean or if someone were to ask us to describe them, we couldn't really define it. We just kind of know and understand what they are. So I'm going to do my best to get us all on the same page and define them so that we can continue going forward. Confession is just to bring our sins to light. We don't try to hide them any longer, but instead acknowledge and make them known to God, which is an act of obedience because our God is omniscient. He is all-knowing, and therefore he already knows all of our sin. Repentance, then, is to surrender or turn back to God. Think about it like this. When we are in a right relationship with God, we are facing him. But when we sin, we turn our backs to God Then, and then we enter into confession and repentance, which is when we acknowledge our sin and then we turn back around to face God. If you're not sure how to do this, come talk to me or Austin or one of the other deacons after the service. We would love to walk through it with you. If you don't have the words to confess, you may not know what to say, then just pray Psalm 51. 
Because that is exactly what David is doing. David is entering into confession and repentance with the Lord. Does anyone feel convicted yet? I know that I do. But thankfully, David does not stop after verse 6. Let's go ahead and read verses 7 through 12 again. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Isn't that beautiful? We sing so many songs that have words um, from those verses. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Blot out all my guilt. Create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. If you are a follower of Christ, those should be some of the sweetest words that you could possibly hear because they are true about you. Christ died on the cross for you. He took on your sin. His blood has washed you whiter than snow. You have a clean heart and a renewed spirit because of him. The wages of sin is death, but that verse does not end there. It continues on. But the gift of, lo- uh, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are cleansed from our sin only through the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. That is it. There is nothing else to it. What is it that David asked God to purify him with? Hyssop. Now, according to my knowledge, we do not grow hyssop here in Ohio. Um, If someone can correct me on that after the service, they can go ahead. Um, So I had to look up what hyssop was, um, and this is what I found. It is a small plant shaped in such a way that it could be used as a brush. In Leviticus and Numbers, hyssop was actually used to sprinkle blood on people or sacrifices in cleansing ceremonies. So when David asked God to purify him with hyssop, he is referring to the process of sacrifice, specifically the sprinkling of blood. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate sprinkling of blood, is Jesus' death on the cross. It is the one sacrifice for all sin. If you felt any conviction or guilt when we looked at confession in verses 1 through 6, that is probably a good thing. You were most likely honestly examining yourself for sin. But hearing that the sacrifice has already been made, the washing has already taken place, the wage has already been paid, should lift that guilt. It should remove any feeling of conviction. Because all that you need to do is acknowledge your sin to God and turn back to face him. That should bring us great joy and gratitude. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Instantaneously, whoever has confessed and repented is a new creation. They have been reborn. The moment you surrender your life to Christ, you have been made righteous in the eyes of the Lord 
and your relationship with him has been restored. Look at verse 12. David does not just want to be cleansed of his sin. He wants to be restored. Righteous or righteousness is another word that we as Christians love to use but can have a hard time explaining to someone. This is especially true in my experience with high school students. They love to answer a question with righteous or righteousness, but when you ask them what that word means, they often are at a loss for words. I cannot tell you how many times I've been at one of our campaigners' Bible studies where a high school student uses the word righteousness to answer a question, and often they use it correctly, they get the question right, and I immediately ask them, hey, what does that word mean? And there are two main reasons to do this, neither of which is to try and embarrass the student or put them on the spot. The first reason is this. Like I mentioned earlier, we are trying to reach students who have never set foot in a church, students who have never opened up a Bible before. So righteousness can be a scary word for them to hear. And I want to make sure that they know that it is far from scary, that it is a great and good word. The second reason is this. I want to make sure that the student who used that word fully understands what they are saying. So here is my super simplified teenage definition of righteousness. In three words, it just means to be right with God. To be righteous means that you are in a right relationship with God. And guess what? If you have surrendered your life to Christ, if you have confessed and repented of your sins, you are righteous because of Jesus' death on the cross. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, you are in Christ. You have been made into a new creation. The old you has gone and the new you is here. This is the salvation from the Lord that David is asking for in verse 12. The salvation whose joy he wants restored. We should find peace and contentment in the joy of salvation. After we have confessed and repented of a sin, it should no longer bring us great guilt or make us feel dirty because the price for that sin has already been paid. You have already been forgiven for it. You have already been washed clean from it. If we are not able to move from guilt and conviction to joy and gratitude, then we are not trusting in the cross enough. It means that we are struggling to believe that Jesus' sacrifice actually paid the price for our sin. And that is not the case. Jesus' death is enough for you to be forgiven of every sin you ever have and ever will commit. This feeling of true joy in God's salvation should spur us on to even more. Look at what David writes in the rest of Psalm 51 beginning in verse 13. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings, then bowls will be offered on your altar. Does that, does that not sound like a completely different man than the one who wrote the first six verses of Psalm 51? David has moved from the guilt and conviction of his sin to the joy of salvation to now the hope that comes from the cross. He is not only concerned about his own salvation, but he wants others to experience that very same salvation. We too should feel spurred on by our own salvation. Our righteousness should cause us to take the good news of the gospel to those who are still lost because we did nothing to earn it. God's perfect grace is the reason we have been made righteous. It is the reason we have been made into a new creation. We should want others to experience that very same grace. We should want others to be made righteous. We should want others to be made into a new creation. But how can we do that? How can we bring others the hope of the gospel? I think there's a lot of ways, but we're not, we don't have time to go through them all. One way that we can share the gospel is by inviting someone to church. Because if they are here with us on a Sunday morning, they are going to be flooded with the gospel. We sing, read, and hear the gospel every single week. We love one another with gospel love. Another way to share the gospel is to simply share the way that Christ has worked in your own life. To share with someone how you once were lost, but through Christ you have been found. To share how the old you that was enslaved to sin is gone, while the new you, a new creation, is here. I think that there are very few things more powerful than the sharing of a testimony because that is when someone gets to share how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has changed their life. David also wanted to worship God for his salvation. He wants his tongue to sing of God's righteousness and his mouth to declare God's praise because God is deserving of David's worship, just as God is des deserving of our worship because of all that he has done in our lives. I used to think when I was a teenager and just starting to figure out what it looked like to be a follower of Christ, that it was cool or maybe even manly to just stand there and not sing the songs during worship. I'm sure a lot of us guys have been there at some point in our own lives, but I, let me tell you, it is not. How, how do we hear David described all throughout the Bible? As a man after God's own heart. And here is David wanting to sing of God's righteousness. Let us all sing of God's righteousness. Let us all worship God for all that he has, is, and will do in our lives. But be, just because we worship God, just because we have been made into a new creation in Christ, that does not mean that we will be perfect that does not mean that we will go the rest of our lives without sin. We are still human after all. We are still sinful by nature. But we don't need to be perfect or live without sin in order to be a faithful follower of Christ. Remember, 
Jesus' death on the cross covered all sin. It paid the price for all of my sin and all of your sin. It doesn't matter whether it came before or after we were made righteous by entering into God's salvation, which is why a true mark of the Christian life is not that we never sin, but that we never stop going to God in repentance. We don't need to be perfect in order to be faithful followers of Christ. We need to be honest and humble enough to continue to go to the Lord in repentance. We need to continue to confess our sins to God. Think of what David writes in verse 17. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. God wants our hearts. He desires the inward change that David is talking about. The inward sacrifice of surrendering to God. There is no number of burnt offerings that David could make that would be equal to him worshiping God in his heart and soul. That is what David is praying for in verses 18 and 19. That all of God's people would worship God through inward sacrifice. That God's people would surrender their whole lives to him. And we get to live out this prayer today. We are God's people because we are followers of Christ. We don't have to clean ourselves up before we go to the Lord because the blood of Christ has already washed us clean. We get to come as we are, dirty and broken, and be made new in Christ. Yes, we worship God with our tongues and our mouths. Yes, our lives look different than our neighbors because of Christ. But ultimately, though, it is the inward sacrifice, the surrendering of our lives to Christ that pleases the Lord. Because as David puts it so well, God will not despise a broken and humbled heart. We have been on a bit of a roller coaster ride this morning. We have all probably felt the guilt and conviction of sin, the joy and gratitude of salvation and the hope of the cross. But remember, while Psalm 51 is a psalm of confession, it should point us to the joy and hope that we have in Christ because it reminds us that we have been made righteous in him. Because the seriousness of sin requires an honest and humble confession, which by the grace of God alone allows us to be forgiven and restored. Let's take a moment to spend some time with the Lord. Maybe you have something that you need to confess and repent of. Maybe you need to thank God for his salvation. Or maybe you want to praise God for all that he has done in your life. Or you might have something else that you want to bring before God. But let's all take a moment to respond to God's word, and then I will close us in prayer.